um, our event this evening. Um, we're very glad to see so many people here on, on, on a night like this. We were a bit worried that the, uh, the panel would outnumber the audience, but uh, mercifully that's not the case, so thank you for coming. Uh, well, tonight we're uh, launching um, this book um, by Daniele Arkebuji and uh, Alice Peace, Crime and Global Justice. I gather you've probably launched it in a few places by now, but we're very happy to have you here tonight. And um, each of them will speak uh, for about seven or eight minutes, and then we'll engage in a, a panel discussion with our illustrious fellow panelists, Christine Chinkin from the LSE, Mary Calder from the LSE, and uh, Richard Falk from Princeton University. Um, and then we will open it up for a Q&A with the audience. Now, I have some instructions to issue before we uh, begin. Well, you know where the exits are. That's fairly obvious in, in this room. At the end of the event... There will be a, a book signing and a book sale, uh, so the two of them will, will be signing books uh, for those of you who want to buy one of them. Um, there may be a podcast. Uh, we can't absolutely guarantee it, but we hope that, that the event will be successfully available to you on podcast uh, at the LSE Events uh, website. So, um, uh, welcome. Uh, let's hear about this marvelous book. Alice, are you, you opening discussions for us? I am indeed, Good, yes. good, thank you. Thank you, Gary, and thank you too to Mary and to Amy for organizing this event here tonight. Um, our analysis is really focused on the emergence of the international criminal justice system and what has been achieved in the past 30 years. We look at the, the current system's strengths and weaknesses, and we're forced to conclude that the current system is still very much the most powerful governments. However, we are not too despondent, and we suggest ways in which the current system may be made, um, may be improved through both extrajudicial mechanisms and also through improving the current machinery. So our starting point is really uh, the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials. Actually, I think there's lights on the back. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. So our starting point is the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials. As most of you know, this represented an, an important shift in paradigm where war criminals were brought to a courtroom for the first time. And although these trials were hugely significant and led to several declarations, including the Universal Declaration for Human Rights and the Nuremberg Principles, there was no effort really at this time to establish a permanent court or to uh, develop meaningful enforcement mechanisms. What followed was a period of long hibernation, where very little to advance the project of international criminal justice was done, and it was not really until the fall of the Berlin Wall and a new climate of international didart in the 1990s that progress was really achieved. And this was done really thanks to... Uh, a combination of different forces, including academics, a new willingness by governments, and also the role of public opinion. So what do we mean by the new generation of international tribunals? Uh, by this, we mean a system of 
a variety of instruments which have been developed over the last 30 years. These include the ad hoc tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, the authority of domestic courts to prosecute international crimes using universal jurisdiction, the establishment of hybrid tribunals, the establishment of national tribunals um, for criminal accountability for international norms, and last but by no means least, uh, the creation of the uh, International Criminal Court, which has been active since 2002. Now, Daniela and I have used a particular interpretive model uh, when looking at the different cases, um, which really identifies three moments uh, in searching for judicial accountability. On the left-hand side, you'll see the ways in which um, judicial accountability is activated either through intergovernmental consensus, autonomous judicial action or social and political activism or a combination of those different forces. In the centre um, are the instruments to pursue judicial accountability which I mentioned in the previous slide and Daniele will talk about opinion tribunals later. And finally we've looked at the outcome, the outcome both on a national level in either helping to achieve peace and reconciliation uh, or else if it has a negative effect in um, exacerbating existing tensions. Um, and finally we've looked at the global impact of these trials and looking at how, how these trials and proceedings have helped to establish international uh, norms and standards of behaviour. So our focus has been to um, really look at the trials rather than the procedures because what we were really concerned with were the, um, the political impact of these trials. We've chosen to focus on four cases. The case of Agosto Pinochet, who was indicted on the basis of universal jurisdiction. Uh, the trial and execution of Saddam Hussein the trials of Slobodan Milosevic and Karadzic, and finally the ongoing case and indictment against Omar Bashir. Now we've chosen to focus on heads of state because if international, the international criminal justice system, system is really going to be, be effective, it has to target those at the top of the military and political chain of command. We could have addressed a few different cases, um, but as you'll appreciate, our time was limited, so this will surely be the work of other scholars. So I'm just now going to touch very briefly upon two cases which offer an interesting comparison as to the different impact that a trial or indictment may have. The first of these cases is the case of Agosto Pinochet, who, as most of you know, uh, was arrested here in London, and it fell to the law lords who at the time the House of Lords was the highest court of appeal to determine whether or not he should benefit from impunity. Um, he were, the judges eventually decided that he should not be granted immunity, but he was eventually released and um, on humanitarian grounds and allowed to return to Chile. Now, what's interesting about this case is that even though Binochet never entered the courtroom, his indictment did a lot to promote the culture of accountability in Chile. Whereas before um, his indictment in Spain, there, was, there were very few human rights prosecutions in Chile. After, when he returned to Chile, uh, the judges found a new willingness to prosecute and there were a number of indictments uh, against 
those at the top of the military and um, political chain of command. And at a global <coughs> level, this trial really helped to um, promote accountability and encourage other activists to initiate proceedings on the basis of universal jurisdiction. In contrast, the trial of Saddam Hussein was a, was a disaster for transitional um, justice. Uh, the case his trial and execution provoked sectarian violence, fueled resentment, and humiliated efforts to do justice. From the start of the 2003 invasion, it was very much about settling the scores and not about the search for justice. Um, and Saddam Hussein's execution was a missed opportunity to uh, carry out a broader investigation into the crimes of his regime. So we can conclude that this was very much a case of victor's justice and it begs the question of whether it was worth having a trial at all or whether some re-execution would have been just as effective. So now I'm going to pass over to Daniel. Thank you very much. So, I mean, uh, by looking at these cases, uh, the typical issues uh, of international criminal justice uh, emerged. And this can be summarized in three different issues. Is it, again, a witness justice that it was in Nuremberg and in Tokyo, or something different? Uh, we suggest that not necessarily is witness justice. In some cases, it is. Uh, Saddam Hussein, Slobodan Milosevic. In other cases, it's just uh, justice uh, against the losers, those who are not any longer a relevant role in international politics. Pinochet, for example. But not only Pinochet, we can say also Karadzic, which was tried many years after he, the crimes were committed. Of course, he's extremely selective. And there is a long list of potential uh, criminals those who have committed crimes under international law, which are large and which have not been touched by any judicial procedure. And that's indeed the problem. But again, by combining these two things, we can discuss the fact that we cannot trial all those who have committed international crimes is perhaps a good reason for not using judicial devices against any of them, Somehow we should start somewhere. And the fact that many authors of international crimes are still at large or are totally untouched by any judicial issue is not a good reason to do nothing. And therefore, you know, sometimes we should see these sort of things as an evolving process. Perhaps by starting today, we will get more trials tomorrow, at least. And that, of course, is a part of the long term cosmopolitan project to use judicial devices in order, if you like, to uh, domesticate, domesticate international politics and to see if international politics too can be bounded to some of the rules of the liberal, the liberal society. Has this process been efficient? No, it has not. It has been costly, and if we compare, especially with the International Criminal Court, the number of trials which have actually been achieved, the number of investigations which have actually been uh, occurring with the 900 member staff of the International Criminal Court or the cost of the International Criminal Court, we should really say that the process has been non-efficient compared to any 
other international criminal, criminal institution. But more importantly, especially in front of a panel which has authors which have worked mostly on normative international politics, what can be done? And indeed, we reviewed the proposals to strengthen the judicial machinery and to do something more which is very much in line with what a very global civil society should somehow try to do in this context. And indeed, the judicial machinery can be improved, and it will be improved if it's not left in the hands of the judges alone, or even in the governments which decide who the judges will be and will decide the founding. There are some good cases, the cases of non-governmental organizations which have provided investigations, and that's a case, for example, which has reopened the investigation on war crimes committed by British soldiers in Iraq during the Iraq war, and something more can be done in order to look at what's happening. An important case quite recently, when the international tribunals are blocked by governmental policies, there is always a possibility to use a universal jurisdiction of national courts, and for example now some torture perpetrators in Syria have been uh, investigated by some German courts. If not much, of course, we would prefer that uh, the heads of states are under a, tri a tribunal and not just uh, the perpetrators of, of torture, but at least uh, there is a hope that something can be done against, uh, against impunity. We also, in the book, gave a lot of importance of the combination of uh, um, the typical judicial cases uh, with uh, other forms uh, of activity, such as the Truth and uh, um, the, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Take the case of Rwanda. In Rwanda, there is, of course, a, a UN Security Council tribunal. The tribunal has managed to uh, indict 100 people. 60 have been convicted. The others have not been convicted out of a genocide of about 800,000 800, individuals. So it's quite clear that there is a total disproportion between the number of people at the bar and the number of crimes which have been committed. But still, in Rwanda, there have been the, uh, uh, the so-called Gakaka courts, and there have been something like 12,000 Gakaka courts. So a much more diffused process of assessing at least some of the offenses. I would like to remember that this was uh, uh, the process of truth and reconciliation I started with Nelson Mandela in South Africa, and uh, it's a one important contribution of the non-Western culture to this process. While it's often said, and sometimes rightly so, that uh, the idea that you perpetrate one individual is typical of the liberal culture, individual responsibility, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela and uh, Desmond Tutu have done another work, and by the way, I, there is also a beautiful film about that uh, in my country, which I strongly recommend. For those of you who would be interested, we have made extensive use in the book of novels and films which are devoted to these issues, and often, you know, they are an important source of information about that. I think uh, my time is over, Gary, and uh, I would like uh, to uh, just, uh, you know, uh, to show a last picture, 
and this is a very dramatic picture, the picture of the Slobodan project. I think many of you have seen it. I mean, haven't you? That was one of the top hits in the newspapers such as the New York Times, The Guardian, La Repubblica, Le Monde, and so on. Everybody has seen this stuff. This, of course, was a very sad stuff, and it shows that often there is a total mismatch between the subjective perception of crimes and how the guilty people feel about that. This is a tragedy. It's not the only one. We have got a lot of tragedies. I'm thinking about Mladic, for example. Mladic lost his daughter, which committed suicide one year before the Srebrenica massacre, and so on. Too often, there are not just guilty persons and victims, but there are victims only on both sides. And this is actually an issue which, you know, the typical instruments of criminal justice have a lot of problems to uh, to address. As a, a last case, uh, I would like, uh, uh, that's, I mean, I've got, yes, an important uh, speaker in an opinion tribunal uh, of the war tribunal on Iraq. And, uh, but one issue I would like uh, uh, to remember, it's uh, something that we cite in the book, is General Patton, and I will finish with that. General Patton was a peculiar character, was uh, a, I mean, he gave a lot of trouble to Montgomery when uh, they arrived in Sicily and so on, and uh, was also the general which uh, arrived at the Buchenwald concentration camp in April 1945. Hitler was still alive. The war uh, was uh, still on, no? And uh, he was uh, totally uh, destroyed. A general, after several years of war, was destroyed what, what he saw in the concentration camps, and he didn't know what to do. But and then he reacted in a very intelligent way, and he said, let's come here with all the senior uh, reporters and the photo reporters, and at the time, together with the American army, there were the young Billy Wilder and a few others, you know? So people who, after, after the war, uh, made uh, the, the most uh, in Hollywood cinemas. And quite a lot of photos of films were taken in this part to document what was happened there. But General Patton decided to do something more. He took... Uh, a delegation of citizens from the nearby Weimar, the city of Gatenschiller, the very cradle of the German humanistic and romantic spirit, and decided that he had to take these people to watch what the soldiers did nearby. It was an attempt to develop awareness <laughs> of what's happening, and I think it's an important lesson which says that the distinction between some perpetrators only and some, uh, and some victims only sometimes uh, is uh, not effective. Somehow, by being silent and by accepting so many human rights violations, all of us uh, are somehow part uh, of the story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Alice and Daniele, for that uh, introduction to the book. Now I'm going to hand over to uh, Christine uh, Chinkin first, who's the, the uh, director of the Centre on Women's Security here at the LSE, uh, a former professor of international law in the law department. So, Christine. Okay, thanks, Gary. Uh, thank you all for coming. And I'd like to be the first to say what I think must be very obvious from those very spirited presentations, that this is an extremely enjoyable book to read. It's a grim subject, but it's very good reading. 
And I'm a lawyer, and too many books about criminal justice are about legal, technical issues. Um, I would hastily exclude from that description the works by Gary and Richard um, here, who are two lawyers who very much put things into um, global political context. But by putting it into the global political context, it makes a very interesting and um, certainly different for me as a lawyer um, read. Um, From what um, has been said and the description of the various cases, I want to pick on one theme that sort of runs throughout the whole book, and that's the theme of legitimacy. And I think that the whole concept of how legitimate is international criminal process, what is it that undermines legitimacy, to what extent do questions about legitimacy um, run into the issues you've raised about um, accountability, effectiveness, um, efficiency, And legitimacy, for example, with respect to the actual tribunals themselves, the legitimacy of the judges, the um, legitimacy of the jurisdictional choices that are made, who's put on trial, Victor's justice has already been mentioned. Um, Even where Victor's justice isn't an issue, the legitimacy of the body that is actually created the particular tribunals. The Kachacha tribunals may have more legitimacy because they are bottom, you know, bottom up, as opposed to the Security Council imposing um, through the creation of the ICTY and the ICTR. The Security Council itself, of course, has major contestations about its legitimacy. Those of you that read the comments of the High Commissioner for Human Rights yesterday, where there was a very strong challenge to the legitimacy of the Security Council and the use of the veto, um, I think would recognise that. And the ICC, um, that again has been mentioned a great deal. Um, Its credibility and legitimacy have been challenged both from the outset. The negotiations at Rome were very much influenced by the United States, which then, of course, backed down and did not become a party to the Rome Statute at all. And then through the process, the claims that, well, the reality, that the accused before the ICC have all come from African states, Um, at this point, and the credibility of the ICC through the non-compliance with the arrest warrant with respect to Bashir, one of the cases that you discuss at length but didn't actually um, look at tonight, raises the question about the very credibility of the whole process itself. But legitimacy also runs through um, one of the examples that, again, you didn't get to, although you put up very briefly the picture of Richard at such a tribunal, the, um, one of the alternatives being the creation of so-called people's tribunals. And I want to just mention those for a couple of minutes. People's tribunals are those that are set up outside the formal legal processes, whether of national courts or of international tribunals. They essentially um, seek to raise moral consciousness to respond where national and international mechanisms have failed. They're set up through civil society essentially. They they attempt to find new ways of seeking truth to power. But they're not a new phenomenon. They go back um, quite a long way, but they proliferated particularly since the 1960s. And one of the major criticisms of such tribunals is that they usurp the power of the state, that it is the state that should be responsible for justice, either at the national level or at the international level. Um, the book quotes General de Gaulle in commenting on the, um, the Russell Tribunal, I think, where de Gaulle says, there is no need to tell you that all justice in principle belongs to the state. 
And, of course, people's tribunals are also partisan and discriminatory. Um, But I think, and I would strongly defend people's tribunals, they bring to light and raise awareness of crimes that otherwise might not ever have any public forum at all. They forefront the wider political environment in which such crimes can actually occur in a way that formal criminal tribunals often cannot do. And when they are coupled with careful legal judgment, bringing together sort of legality and legitimacy, they also then um, portray the the interpretation of the law in a way that does not come when there is the failure of effectiveness within the informal criminal tribunals. They can be a powerful instrument of public opinion. But you also conclude that we should be careful about giving too much weight to people's tribunals. The Iraqi tribunal that um, Richard Falk was involved in, and I was also at uh, at the time, um, was a people's tribunal that ran in parallel to the Iraqi formal tribunal that condemned and sentenced to death Saddam Hussein. The book calls these two tribunals, the people's tribunal and the formal Iraqi tribunal, contrasting visions of responsibility for war crimes by two superpowers, the United States on the one hand, civil society on the other. But judging by media coverage, it was the US-supported Iraqi tribunal that came out on top. The People's Tribunal barely got represented. So, great deal that is interesting and important themes throughout the book, but I do want to finish just on a point of criticism. And this is where I turn to a very personal account and a personal reaction to international criminal justice. I've spent really since the beginning of the 1990s working in the context of criminal justice with respect to raising crimes of gender and sexual violence, the issues of bringing um, women's experiences of these atrocities specifically into the international criminal justice process. Um, Part of... I was part of widespread advocacy, lobbying, writing amicus briefs, um, celebrating a few successes, but very often as well also regretting that too often gender-based justice remains undeveloped and with still a very long way to go. And I think without reference to gender justice, that is an audience whose um, assessment of the legitimacy of international criminal tribunal is simply missing. Um, The book concludes um, by recognising that further um, advances in international criminal justice will have to be the outcome of an an emancipatory struggle in which the citizens of the world willing to protect each other from abuses of power succeed in imposing their own legal framework. I think the importance of the women's legal framework also has to be included in any overall assessment of international criminal justice. But having said that, I also strongly recommend the book. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. So um, I'm now going to introduce Mary Calder, who's um, a professor in um, the Department of International uh, Development um, here at the LIC. Um, and the Director of the Conflict and Civil Society Research Unit. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Um, Well, I was thinking, I thought what I would do today, actually, was to talk about the book indirectly, 
by thinking about why is it that global criminal justice is so important. You know, going back to first principles, because what I feel, felt about the book, like Christine, I very much enjoyed reading it. And I felt it's really nice, basic introduction to global criminal justice. You know, you read it and you feel you, 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 you understand in a way that's often very difficult uh, with many of the texts that are around. And of course, Christine and I, years ago, taught, were teaching a course together and we had a week on transitional justice. And we came up with an absolutely brilliant argument which neither of us have ever been able to remember again. <laughs> so I thought maybe today's the day I try to remember what, why we thought, what our argument was. Um, and the reason I want to say, I mean, the book exposes all the warts of international criminal justice, the problems of legitimacy, which uh, Christine has talked about, the double standards, the fact that Bush and Blair were never indicted for, for the war crime of the war in Iraq. Uh, the fact that nearly all the ICC activities have been in Africa. Um, all of these issues, the fact that it's slow, cumbersome, expensive, all of these shortcomings exist. But nevertheless, people like me feel it's incredibly important. And the question is, why? Um, and I suppose at the root of the argument is that we're people, and this is very much an argument that we make, that Christine and I make in our book, um, who want a shift from a war-based to a law-based way of doing security, and that who not only want that, it's not only normative. I think it's actually, and that's the argument I want to make, in this globalised, interconnected world we live in, I think it's the only way you can, in the long term, achieve security. Um, and that's, and, and I'd just like to explain that a little bit. Um, I think the point about international law as it currently stands is that it does actually legitimise war, and war is a legitimate activity, um, as long as it conforms to certain rules. Um, and um, what wars involve is both legitimate killing and impunity for those who kill. That's the war paradigm. And I very much, um, if you think about the discussion that's now going on in this country about returning ISIS fighters, there tends to be a discussion. There was, a, a, some of you may know that Rory Stewart now... Minister for Prisons, can you imagine, uh, made this speech in which he said they all have to be killed. Um, and the response to that was, no, they shouldn't be killed, they should be rehabilitated. And that was a typical war response. You know, they're either, they're enemies, and enemies are not criminals. Uh, enemies can be killed, but if they're not killed, then you treat them as human beings. <laughs> and you rehabilitate them. That's the war paradigm. And, you know, the bit in between, these are guys who've committed terrible crimes. Uh, we owe it to the victims to have justice. It seems to get left out of those debates. And I think the reason is that all of this is based on an assumption 
that war consists of a deep-seated political contest between collective organized groups. That's how we think of war. And if it's such a political contest, then the representatives of organized groups are legitimate enemies. Um, but actually now, the kinds of wars that we mostly see make that kind of paradigm terribly, terribly difficult to impose, which is why, um, which is why it's so important that we develop a justice system. Um, very struck by the way in which I don't know if any of you have been watching the discussion of the ceasefire in Syria, the UN ceasefire. All sides say the ceasefire doesn't apply to terrorists. <laughs> so terrorists are a kind of special category of combatants who can be killed even if there's a ceasefire. Um, and somehow you can't fit terrorists into the war paradigm. That's the problem. So you, you act as though it's a war and you have a ceasefire but terrorists don't fit a paradigm. So I think it's much more useful, and this is what I constantly argue, to think that contemporary wars aren't actually, can't be really understood in terms of a deep-rooted political contest of this respectable kind. Contemporary wars, I like to say, are more like a sort of social condition, you know, in which you could almost call it a social system, in which there are numerous armed groups who gain more from violence itself than from winning. And they gain more either politically because they support ideologies that depend on fear, or they gain economically through loot, pillage, kidnapping, criminal activities, and the disorder allows this criminal activity. And in the pursuit of these goals, all of their violence is directed against civilians. So if you want to solve these kinds of wars, the typical ways you try to solve, you try to solve deep-rooted political contests simply don't work. If it, you can't intervene on one side and hope to win. All you do is make, provide more justifications for violence. And you can't reach an agreement either because the guys who are the armed groups uh, really have an interest in continued violence. So you have to think about ways to reverse the social condition. That's the key to thinking about how to deal with it. And what's involved in that is a whole lot of things, trying to establish legitimate political authorities, trying to establish legitimate economies in place of criminalised economies. But actually justice is absolutely central to trying to develop a different type of social condition. These kinds of wars are wholly illegitimate. They're illegitimate in, um, in physical terms. I mean, the violence against civilians is violations both of international humanitarian law and human rights law, but they also involve widespread economic crime. <laughs> So they're wholly illegitimate, and you can't deal with them except through justice mechanisms. So my final point is, okay, so we need justice, but why global justice? Um, obviously, what, what, why don't we just have chapter courts and local, and why is global justice so significant? And I think 
it's partly that actually this kind of social condition is a global social condition. It's not just localised in Syria. We all of us feel the effects, whether it's refugees and displaced people, whether it's terrorism, uh, or whether it's organised crime. I mean, my favourite example is one of the reasons all of you people sitting here can't afford to live in central London is because housing in London is the favoured method of money laundering for Syrian warlords and Russian oligarchs. And that's why house prices are, that's why the centre of London is full of expensive, empty, luxury houses. You buy a house in London and then you can sell it and your money is clean through a company in Panama. So it's partly that the wars themselves are global. It's partly the severity of the crime. These are crimes that involve ethnic cleansing, that involve genocide in some cases, massive violations of human rights. There is such severity that they're of global significance to the whole human race. And it's partly, and I think that's really important, um, is that if we do want to shift to, as it were, a law-based world order, even if our mechanisms of enforcement are very weak, it's very important to have symbols of, of enforcement in order to develop the kind of legitimacy such a law-based order requires. So those, I just thought I would throw those arguments in for a discussion. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome Richard Falk back to um, the LSE. Uh, Richard will be known to many of you know, the heart of this global justice project for decades. Uh, he's, a, he's a professor emeritus of international law at Princeton. Um, but the main thing I want to say about Richard is that uh, his, uh, one of his books was the first book I ever read on, on international law. So, Richard, thank you. Thank you, Gary. It's a real pleasure to be here, both to celebrate the publication of the book and to share the panel with uh, such close friends and admired colleagues. Uh, Let me uh, just uh, repeat what has already been uh, very clearly said, that this is a wonderful contribution to our understanding of international criminal justice. And it's the place that I think uh, people should begin who have an interest in this, these kinds of issues. It really raises the fundamental questions in a way that is uh, very sensitive to this tension between uh, geopolitics and justice. I mean, it, it uh, quite brilliantly contextualizes uh, this whole uh, enterprise of uh, bringing law to bear on the way powerful political actors abuse fundamental rights. And I think the essence of what Mary was just speaking about is how you do how 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 do you get political traction for that project and if if we can manage that uh, then we're then we can overcome a sense of 
subservience to the existing uh, war paradigm. And, and of course, that it draws also on what uh, Christine said, that how do we find a, uh, a form of legitimacy uh, that isn't state-based? You know, how, how do we transcend the uh, absolutism of national sovereignty that continues to dominate the way security policy is shaped? Uh, I want to uh, sort of maybe as a uh, way of uh, inducing discussion uh, talk about two, uh, two provocative issues that I think emerge from a reading of the book. As I said, there's a very uh, uh, successful effort to walk this tightrope between becoming cynical because power plays such a uh, dominant role and being legalistic and looking in the, as, as if politics didn't exist. You know, how do you, how do you make, how do, how do you uh, manage that, how do you manage to keep a balance on that tightrope? See, that, that's, in, in a way, that's, uh, one, one of the central achievements of the book. And there really are two ways, I think, of thinking about this tension. The fact that uh, Victor, the, the kind of thing Mary sort of listed, the, uh, uh, the deficiencies in international criminal justice, uh, the fact that the... Uh, it was well summarized... Uh, by a Mexican diplomat at the founding of the UN. He said, we created an organization that controls the mice while the tigers roam free. <laughs> See, and, that, and that's, in a way, that's the uh, uh, central uh, dilemma of how to think about the, this kind of selectivity. Because the liberal way of thinking about it, which is, I think, the dominant... Uh, motif of the book is to say uh, criminal justice is worthwhile even if it doesn't reach uh, the biggest criminals because it does reach people that have done terrible things and it gives them a fair trial. So it's uh, procedurally and substantively justified for those reasons and starting back with the Nuremberg and Tokyo, especially Nuremberg, where there's no question that these uh, defendants did horrible things. Now, it is also true that the victors did some horrible things, and, and maybe the most significant horrible things in the whole war, dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that was excluded from uh, consideration. See, in that uh, that exclusion at the time provoked two interesting uh, and well uh, familiar uh, people interested in these issues are familiar with them. Uh, the American prosecutor, uh, Justice Jackson, said, what we do here to the Germans as defendants will only be validated if it becomes a 
a principle that governs those who sit in judgment. In other words, he was saying, uh, unless in the future there is justice, not Victor's justice, uh, Nuremberg is a failure. See, in this book uh, uh, argues, and the liberal position argues, uh, Jackson was uh, uh, wrong. The promise was broken. It continues to be Victor's justice uh, as the uh, essential characteristic of international uh, criminal law. But for reasons uh, that the authors make clear in the book, it's still a worthwhile enterprise. See, and that... uh, Now, the... the, the, uh, critical position, what one might call the uh, radical view, is that the essence of law and justice is to treat equals equally. And if you don't do that, if especially if you uh, treat the big criminals with the uh, grant of Im- impunity, and the little criminals are executed or put in prison forever, it creates a kind of false moral consciousness. And the false, the, the character of the false moral consciousness is that it allows the geopolitical actors to seize the high moral ground and to uh, uh, justify their uses of force and to uh, create a uh, an atmosphere of moral uh, approval, which is very important in the post-colonial world. The West has tried, through human rights, through international criminal justice, uh, to ret- to somehow retain the idea that it is the source of the higher morality in international life. And for instance, in human rights, it does it by saying human rights is really about civil and political behavior, not about social and economic behavior. And so it overlooks its own deficiencies about, you know, there are 49 million people in the United States that are dependent on food stamps, uh, much more than uh, much poorer Asian countries. And yet it lectures the rest of the world on human rights. See, and the same thing, I think, comes out of the terrorist discourse. There are a whole series of discourses in which the West tries to appropriate the high moral ground. Uh, the war on terror is, it seems to me, the, the, the one that's most significant today. So how do we, how do we uh, adjudicate this difference between the liberal and radical view. It, it's, uh, it, it has sort of resemblance to the, uh, what can be seen either as a uh, higher explanation or cop-out by saying they're both right. But that doesn't solve the problem of what do you do and how do you think. But, but it is, there, is a tr- there is an insight in both views. And it leads to this, uh, to my uh, uh, second uh, provocative question, 
which is, can civil society initiatives close the gap between a law-based approach to criminal justice and a geopolitical-based approach to criminal justice. What we have now is a geopolitical-based approach in which the powerful, the tigers go free, essentially. And what the, the uh, I think the great uh, virtue of the civil society tribunals is to expose this gap between uh, power and law as it applies to behavior in times of war. And the Russell Tribunal, which was quite uh, looked upon with considerable contempt uh, of the sort that uh, de Gaulle uh, exemplified at the time, Still, if you look at, you read the proceedings, it's the best uh, and most comprehensive depiction of the war crimes that occurred in the period. Because the, the geopolitical actors don't want that story told. They want the Nuremberg story told, but they don't want the Vietnam story told. They don't want the... So without civil society taking these initiatives those narratives would be essentially suppressed. Now, the PBS series in the United States, the Ken Burns series, somehow uh, is an exception. It, but it came, what, f uh, 40 years after the events, when it, uh, say, it still wasn't safe to, to have an uh, expose of the atomic bombings. The Smithsonian Institute had to cancel uh, their attempt at having an exhibition which showed the devastation and the suffering that occurred in those Japanese cities. And the director lost his job, I think. And it, uh, American uh, raw nerves were such they couldn't confront their own past. And that's one of the things, one of the disadvantages of winning wars. You tend to repeat the evil things you do uh, because you are never forced to acknowledge them. And without acknowledging, uh, there is no learning. And therefore, there's repetition. And that's one of the real causes. So I think that uh, the it, w it wasn't entirely correct that the uh, Iraq War Tribunal didn't get uh, attention. It got a lot of visibility in the Middle East. See, it didn't get attention in the West. See, and that's one of the things that I think is part of what I tried to say earlier. At stake throughout this subject matter is this idea of rehabilitating Western moral hegemony. And that means being silent about its criminality and being very uh, uh, aggressive about the criminality of others, the non-West, especially Africa, has been uh, singled out in this way. As as and it's it's a kind of 
uh, incomplete decolonization to have this uh, continued uh, hierarchy of accountability. Let me end with the uh, a phrase that I think applies to our own engagement with this subject matter. It's a uh, quotation from the Jewish philosopher Abraham uh, Heschel, who said, I think, very uh, perceptively, few are guilty, but all are responsible. And I think that this area of crimes of state is one where we're all in some sense responsible to the extent we're silent or uh, acquiescent. And so I think this book challenges us in the end not to be silent. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> thank you for that. Uh, so, w- w- before you supply the answers to all these questions, we're going to ask some more questions. Uh, do you have a microphone for? for yeah. yeah. Okay. So let me let me take little sort of bundles of two, two or three. Yavor, anything going on up here? Another one there. Yeah, three. Okay. So let's start with Yavor. Yeah, I think better for the people at the back. Uh, so there's a, down, down here on the front row, thanks. Thanks very much to, to the, both the authors and, and the panels for a very stimulating um, sort of start of our discussion. What strikes me listening to you is this constant reference to Victor's justice. And I wonder how useful that actually is. It sort of assumes very much a World War II paradigm. Was the Iraqi tribunal a sort of similar moment to Nuremberg, where there was occupation, it was the triumph of, of, uh, uh, of uh, sort of victory, really? Or was the Iraqi tribunal actually not victor's justice, it sort of both prefigured and precipitated failure uh, to win that war, which remains, which sort of keeps going for so, so many years after the trial? Similarly, in the war on terror in Afghanistan, 18 years later, as intractable and, pro- and, and probably more intractable than, uh, than ever. And if these wars actually do not have these types of, of endings, if, they, if there are no sort of victors, if, if there are losers, clearly uh, the, the, most of the losers are the societies where they take place, the civilian populations that are displaced, then how useful is to think of, 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 uh, of sort of the victor's justice, both as a way of describing the sort of trials that we might have in places that might be better described, I think, if one thinks of places like the Balkans in Africa, where there has been disinterest in these areas rather than strong vested interest, uh, rather than sort of victor's justice, because the victor's justice assumes, again, a paradigm of, of the war and how these wars end, which we just don't have uh, anymore. And I think it's both misleading and, and sort of potentially problematic uh, as a way of thinking about the role of justice. Okay, so we've got a question in the middle here, just on the fourth row. So if you pass it along the, the row there. Oh. Yes, I mean, the, the, the question here is, what is a justice? What is global justice? 
can we in some way define it? Uh, can I give an idea where justice actually works and works very well? This is international sports, where the rules are very clear and where they're the same for everyone in the world. We've had six years ago Olympic Games here in London. Uh, billions watched it. Millions came to watch it. Did anybody get killed? Did anybody get killed now in the Olympic Games, uh, the Winter Olympic Games in, uh, in uh, Korea? I don't think so. Where the rules are clear, people will come along and will accept them. But where they're different, it doesn't work. I followed, um, from Yugoslavia, by the way, Belgrade, the only capital bombed by both NATO and the Nazis. You know, we have a somewhat different comparison. If I can give you just this as an example where equality is assumed, this is the logo of the international, of the ICTY. You know, I think you can see it. There are two things. The scale of justice, the two are shown as equal. I hope you agree with me. And the global, I suppose, is supposed to represent the world. There are two things that are immediately wrong with it. Uh, first of all, the world. There have been 86 <laughs> judges from 51 countries. Not one of those countries has accepted the rules of the ICTY as applying to them or suggesting that it should ever apply to them in the future. We judge, but we don't want to be judged by the same rules. And then we have these two that are the same, suggesting the scale of justice, the prosecution, and the defense. Is that the case? I don't think so. There is a chief prosecutor <coughs> office of the prosecution. There is no such thing for the defense. The building of the ICTY in The Hague houses the prosecution, the office, and the judges. There is no place there for the defense. I watched the trial of Mr. Milosevic. In fact, I've been there. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll just finish uh, in a minute. But what I'm concerned now is how this plays out here in an academic circle. Because so far here at the LSE, I've been able to hear two chief prosecutors. I've been able to ask questions and so on. I've heard a deputy chief prosecutor. I've heard the man who conducted the trial against Mr. Milosevic, he's now titled, Sir Jeffrey Nice. And then I've heard, out of Belgrade, they bring a lady, Mary Calder will know her, Natasha Kandic, who is funded by the National Endowment of Democracy from the United States, who has only ever supported the prosecution. After more than 20 years, I have yet to hear here in London a position of the defense. And that is wrong. It means that the Yugoslav conflict is utterly biased amongst the academics and amongst the media. And whilst it may be acceptable to outsiders, it certainly won't be acceptable to me and to many others in former Yugoslavia. Thank you. Thanks very much to the panel. I'm looking very forward to reading the book. Um, 
I wanted to ask, so you speak about this idea that just because we can't do everything doesn't mean we shouldn't do something, and just because not everyone who could possibly be tried is being tried doesn't mean that the project is not worthwhile, and it's something that I think about a lot. Um, and I wanted to ask sort of what that means, sort of ask you a little bit more about what that means, um, specifically in terms of the ways in which very often the something that, that we do, because we can't do everything, is very deeply implicated in power. Um, and so to kind of pick up on the legitimacy questions that others in the panel have raised, um, when you have a situation where you have a, a draft withdrawal strategy from the African Union for the ICC, and you have various states indicating desires to withdraw, and you are in many ways in a, a situation of a legitimacy crisis around international justice, how do you, how do, you do that thing where at the one, on the one hand you, you follow the impetus to do something, uh, which is a worthwhile impetus, while at the same time recognizing that some of the something that you're doing is implicating, implicated in the legitimacy crisis? Okay, very uh, uh, eloquent question. So we, we, we had a question about the relevance of the Nuremberg and Victor's justice paradigm to contemporary international criminal justice. We had a question about the relationship between selectivity and power, and we had a question about fairness, uh, particularly in relation to the defense and the prosecution. So you don't have to answer all the questions, uh, but, but maybe if you each say something Okay. Well, I don't really know which one to start with or to choose. Um, I think maybe on the question of Victor's justice, I think we used this term to describe... This was actually the only case where we applied the Victor's justice paradigm because it was c very clearly selective and it was... Um, you, uh, it, the whole, from the start, um, a particular instrument of justice, the Iraqi High Tribunal, was used in order to shield a, an investigation of the occupation power. So that's why we used it in this case. I don't think it's applicable to many other countries or to any other co conflicts, and certainly not the other ones that we looked at. Thank you. <coughs> Do you know of anybody? who has been put down by law, or more specifically, down by international criminal justice, which was innocent? I don't. All of them are a bunch of bastards. <laughs> All of them are committed serious crimes. They are not alone. I agree. But this, I think, reivindicates the idea that at the end of the day, something is done. You know? If you know any case of a typical mistake of justice, let me know and write me an email. Because I don't know any case of a judicial mistake of international criminal justice. I've seen a few cases of people which, you know, were probably guilty, but they at the end that managed to get rid of, of, the, of the net of justice because they had good lawyers. I'm not speaking about uh, O.J. Simpson, others, okay? <laughs> so, is that enough? No, it's not enough. We need to do more. And uh, to go back to your question, very briefly, 
First of all, it seems that the Serbian view was well defended at LSE by yourself. We already met in several occasions. You <laughs> always made this point. I think your points were legitimate, you know, but still, you know, at least at LSE, let me say, you know, there was the possibility for almost everybody to talk about these issues. I was here when you invited Carla del Ponte and Marlis Glacius was here and others and so on. I remember that I questioned Marli, um, Carla del Ponte and said, how come that the prosecution against NATO stopped? And she said, I sent a letter. And then they never responded. You know? And so on. <laughs> so that's, uh, I think, uh, um, is little justice. I mean, I think Alice already responded about that, you know? I mean, we had to start. And when the official justice is insufficient, we need to go back to what Bertrand Russell has done, to what Richard Falk has done, to what, what you know, the Korean women did in terms of, in terms of to go back 70 years for the comfort women. I definitely accept your point, uh, Christine. You are totally right. But the news—the good news is that if I'm going to write another book, uh, it's going to be all dedicated to opinion tribunals, and will include especially the work, also the work that uh, that you have done. So I don't have um, other things to do. But let me say something. Uh, I I'm even older than I look. I, I started, uh, I started to, uh, to be concerned with this issue when I was in high school. It was 1974. And I uh, drove, not drove, I went by bus. I, I didn't have a driving license at the end. <laughs> into the opinion tribunal for the um, torture crime in, uh, in, uh, in Latin America, convened by the International People's Tribunal in Rome, yeah. Basso Foundation, and I was with a, a friend of mine, even if he was much older than me, I knew him through political activism, which was tortured in Brazil, you know? He was tortured in Brazil in front of his wife, and his wife was pregnant. Can you imagine? It was, I mean, I remember this, this man, which has recently retired to be an international relations professor in Sao Paulo, Brazil, this man had at least a small comfort. He could tell his story in front of an opinion jury, you know? And uh, since then, I started to think that perhaps something more can be done of the sort of things that uh, uh, my colleagues in this panel have done. By the way, his son lives in Rome. He's now 45 or something like that. He has two children. He has become a family consultant. So, we have to people try and find their way home tonight at, at, at 8 o'clock. So can, can we, we'll need to keep this quite brief now. Do, do, Mary, did you want to... I have something, but I've completely forgotten it. Well, like the you, well, like Richard, Richard, why don't you... If, if you remember, just say... Oh, I can remember. remember. I've remembered. It was actually not so much a comment on the questions, but I do think that the legacy of Nuremberg is the reliance on airstrikes for everything. And airstrikes are seen somehow as legitimate. And having observed what has happened recently in the ISIS areas uh, of Syria and Iraq, um, 
you know, the town of Raqqa has been completely destroyed. <coughs> many, many more people have been killed than were killed by ISIS, and don't for a moment think I'm defending ISIS. But um, airstrikes, and, and now we're seeing what's happening in Ghouta, and we're seeing the bombing of hospitals and schools. Uh, and I think that is a terrible legacy of Nuremberg that we simply... I mean, it's not simply that it wasn't fair, it's that it's left us thinking that somehow airstrikes are legitimate uh, instruments of force. And it, it's just... You know, 71 countries are involved in the coalition against ISIS, all of them bombing a small area of land. Uh, sorry, can I just add one thing from that? Mm. It's not just um, airstrikes. It's been the continuation into drone warfare. Yeah. Uh, and the way that that is seen as clean in some sense. Yeah. And so that um, um, legacy sort of continues yeah. into the further ways. Yes. Um, I would just extend this, uh, these comments and what uh, Daniele earlier said about something has to be done. Something has to be, he's right, these are bastards that are being prosecuted, but there's a cost in doing it the way it's been done. And that it's important, and I think the, the book actually recognizes uh, that to, at least in principle, but the, the idea that you legitimate what the victor does. See, I think if, if, uh, Germany had developed nuclear weapons or atomic weapons before uh, the U.S. did and had used them, and the U.S. had gone on to win the... the Allies had gone on to win the war, uh, nuclear weapons would have been criminalized and we would mm. be living in a different world. And so uh, something must be done, but also uh, it has to be recognized that the costs are very high in doing it this way. Geopolitics plays too big a role in what shapes the future. And in these and that's one of the roles of these civil civil society tribunals is that it shows the whole it narrates from a, a people's and law based perspective and uh, creates a tension with the geopolitics, geopolitical-based perspective. Well, thank you. Um, I think we can say that bastards is now a term of art in international criminal law. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, but thank you for, for the book um, and the commentary, and thank you all for coming out uh, this evening. So join with me in, in congratulating the authors and thanking the panelists for their